Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. My job this evening is a little bit different than it would be at this point in a service on a Sunday morning. I don't intend to preach a sermon or anything like that. I just want to give you something to meditate on, something to think about. In fact, in an ideal world, what I would say to you this evening would be something that you would find a moment tomorrow on Thanksgiving to think about and to reflect on. That's the way I kind of see my mission on nights like this, to give you something so that in the, the, the busyness of Thanksgiving, uh, you can pause and reflect and think about what we've spoken here from Scripture. Book of Revelation is certainly biting off a lot, uh, hopefully not more than we can chew, uh, definitely more than we can chew, but we're not going to try to chew all of it. We're just going to look at this short passage and take away from it a few things. Uh, let me read this passage to you. This is Revelation chapter 11, and this is, if you know your kind of recurring patterns of the book of Revelation, this is the seventh uh, trumpet that is sounding. So there have been six prior to this. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. But your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Father, as we contemplate this vision of your majesty, we pray that you would give us reason to be thankful. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Oftentimes, when you're trying to get yourself in the right uh, mindset for Thanksgiving, it's helpful to think about the first Thanksgiving, at least kind of the the way we've uh, told the story of the first Thanksgiving. But I thought it would be interesting to do exactly the opposite this evening. Instead of looking at the first Thanksgiving, I thought we should take a look at the last Thanksgiving. Because sometimes the last version of something is the best. It's the ultimate. So in Revelation chapter 11, you have what I'm going to call the last Thanksgiving. And it involves some singing like what we've done this evening. The Thanksgiving song, a hymn of praise sung by the elders. Now We will not try to recreate that this evening having the elders sing for you, but you can imagine the scene as you read John's words. Now, before we get too far, I want to give you kind of a, let's say a crash course in the the images that we've just read, because of course the book of Revelation is a book full of not just prophecy, but but, uh, symbols and signs and that sort of thing. It's not exactly allegory. It's not that 
Every symbol stands for one specific thing. Sometimes it's, it's different than that. And a lot of the images in the book of Revelation actually call back to earlier images in the Bible. The book of Revelation is a very Old Testament book. It just doesn't put signposts up so that you don't see it unless you've got your thinking cap on. We're going to try to see some of it this evening. So, so really quickly, let's just go over a few things that, that will orient you in this passage. So as I said, what's happening here is the seventh trumpet is being blown, and this is the last of the, the trumpets to be blown. So there have been six that have come before. So you get one through six, and then finally seven, which of course in Scripture is a number of completion. When you get to seven, you have, for example, you think of creation. The six days of work and creation, on the seventh day God rests. There's a wholeness, a completeness that the, the seventh indicates. And you see that throughout Scripture, and certainly through the book of Revelation, because you don't just get seven trumpets, you get a, a bunch of different things, right? There's seven seals that come before the trumpets. After the trumpets, you'll get seven signs. And then when you're thinking, oh, three sevens, wow, you get another set of seven, seven bowls that will take you all the way through chapter 16. And those sequences don't run chronologically. They run kind of concurrently. So they're, they're telling, in some cases, like the same kinds of events, but they're doing it differently with a different emphasis, that sort of thing. But what we need to know here is that this is a moment of completion. When the seventh trumpet is sounded, it means things have reached their fullness. The, the blowing of the seventh trumpet marks the consummation of history because it marks, as we can see, the consummation of the kingdom of God. What the elders are celebrating is the fact that God now rules and reigns fully. His kingdom isn't just like established, but it is now here in, in its completeness. And that's what they're celebrating, that that kingdom has finally come. Now, I mentioned creation, so you should be thinking of Old Testament patterns, but the Old Testament pattern that should come to mind here with this text is Jericho. If you remember the city of Jericho, how many times did, did they circle over how many days? It was seven days. And then on the seventh day, they circled seven times. And there were seven priests. And the seven priests carried seven trumpets. You start getting the idea, wow, on the seventh day, when the seven priests blow their seven trumpets, whatever happens is probably going to bring some completeness to the cycle. And indeed it does. Because when that happens, the walls come tumbling down. Literally, the, the kingdom of the enemies of God's people crumbles. And the, the rule, the, the land of promise is opened up to Joshua, to Yeshua, who is a type of our Lord Jesus. It's not an accident that in this vision of the seventh trumpet, that sequence that we see in Jericho is repeated. Not only do we see a kingdom established with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, but we also see a glimpse of something we thought was gone forever, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, the seven priests with the seven trumpets, they marched before the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, later on down the line in the Babylonian captivity, that thing, it disappeared. So that when Jesus is standing before the temple and teaching, if you went inside the temple and you went into the Holy of Holies, 
there was no Ark of the Covenant there any longer. The people dreamed of some sort of return or restoration of it, but it wasn't there yet. It becomes significant that it appears here. But before we talk about that, first notice the elders who sit on their thrones. There's 24 of them. And when you wonder, like, the significance of that, obviously it's speculative because there's no passage that says, oh, and if you're wondering who these elders are, but there are 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church, and it's very suggestive that the 24 elders before the throne of God represent these prophets and apostles, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles that, of course, we cannot know for sure. When heaven is revealed, when the temple and God's presence opens up at the very end of our passage, we read that the temple in heaven was open and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. You think about what the ark of the covenant was for, what it meant in the tabernacle or in the temple, what you did with the ark of the covenant. It's kind of interesting. On the day of atonement, when the sacrifice was made to atone for the sins of the people, you know what they did with the blood from the sacrifice? They brought it into the tabernacle, later into the temple, and they poured that blood out on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant to cover the sins of the people. When the Ark of the Covenant was gone, you couldn't do that anymore. It's very suggestive that at this moment, as the victory is being celebrated, the Ark of the Covenant is visible in the temple above, right? in the temple where Christ, our high priest, entered in and offered himself up as an atonement because it is that victory of Christ on the cross which secured the kingdom that comes in fullness here in chapter 11. You have some interesting wording here describing the Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. If you look in chapter 1 of Revelation, you'll notice that's not the full formulation that's used several times. He's referred to as the one who, who, who was and who is and who is to come. That sequence is echoed, you know, past, present, future in the Gloria Patri, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. World without end, amen. It's kind of strange that the elders, when they sing it, even though they sit before the throne of God, they get the words wrong. They leave something out. Well, what do they leave out? Who is, they get the present tense, and who was, they get the past tense. But the is to come, they don't get. Because they're singing in the future. And there is no is to come. Because the future is here. Because the not yet is here. The kingdom that we long for, that is to come, is there. And it changes the song, understandably, a little bit. The lightnings, the rumblings, the thunder, the earthquake, the hail, all of these uh, special effects, these are things that come with theophany. They come when God reveals himself. They come on Mount Sinai, for example, when God meets with Moses. And that passage that the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 hearkens back to, the, the stuff that makes you tremble, it accompanies God's revelation of himself. So what the elders are doing here when they sing, they're celebrating the full coming of the kingdom of God. This is the reign that was pictured. This is the, the victory that was uh, anticipated by all these other victories 
and all these other songs and all these other thanksgivings throughout Scripture. But now comes the last one. Now comes the highest one. Because here we celebrate the thing that we anticipated because it has now come to pass. It is now happened. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. That's the song of thanksgiving. Earlier in the pandemic, I thought it was late in the pandemic at the time, but it turns out it was actually quite early in the pandemic. I did a talk and a couple of interviews about uh, what I worried was the lesson of the pandemic that people were likely to learn. I thought in a time like this, what tends to happen is people get sort of confirmed in their view of what solves problems, what power to look to, what hope to look to. And what I saw then, like in May, was it seemed like there were a lot of people whose hope had always been, let's say, in, in in politics, in government, the government's going to save us. And for people like that, they would find that really sort of double, they double down on that trust. And then there'd be other people who would think the great lesson of the pandemic was self-reliance, that you can't trust the government to do things. You can only trust yourself, and you have to learn to trust yourself. Well, as Amos says, I am no prophet, and neither Am I the son of a prophet? And I certainly didn't see the length of the pandemic that was coming. But I think in some ways those concerns were borne out. That if you think about what we've seen, what we've done during this season, true to form, our political idolatries have been confirmed. For many of us, we believe only more strongly in the other saviors that we were sitting on the throne next to Christ. But surely now, as we look back, and as we do in Thanksgiving, process the time that has passed, if there's one lesson that we can have learned, if we look at the world, if we look at the the many different ways that different countries have responded, different parts of different countries, and recognize that no one seems to have done it right, that no one seems to have solved the problem, that no one seems to have it under control, and that we are still looking forward to some hope in the future to hold on to if there's one thing that hopefully by now we can learn. It's that none of our idols can deliver. None of the the sources of solution that we thought were going to fix this for us have the power to do that. Left or right, none of them have delivered us. You look at what's happening in the world, it's easy to say to yourself, wait a second, I don't think anyone's in charge. I know this is a time when conspiracy runs wild and we imagine there are all these nefarious forces on the other side that control events. We tell ourselves these things to hide from the much more frightening reality that no one is secretly in charge that things are truly out of control, that there is no predictability to what is taking place. When you see that for what it is, and you recognize your powerlessness in the midst of that, it's a hard and bleak realization. And if your clear-sightedness ends there, if that's as far as you see, then you have no reason for thanksgiving. Because this is a season that opens your eyes to the essential hopelessness of life. Fortunately, 
We have the song of the elders before the throne of Christ. We don't need to stop there in our insight. What if, like the law, the reality that we're living through now is is given to us as a teacher? It's given to us specifically to show that wherever we put our trust before now, it does not have the power to deliver us. There's no reason to feel gratitude towards those allegiances because there's only one foundation of gratitude, which is the kingdom of Christ. I want to tell you why I think you should reflect on the elders' song, why you should take some time tomorrow to reflect on this. And then I'm going to tell you why, if you do that, what I think you'll see, like what, what to think about. So why should you reflect on this song? Why is this important for us to think about now? As I already said, one reason is this is the ultimate Thanksgiving song. It's the ultimate in the sense that it's the last. It's the crowning achievement of Thanksgiving. There's no greater gratitude that's ever been expressed than the gratitude that we see kind of uh, expressed as a vision of the future here from the end of time. This is the song all of our songs of Thanksgiving look forward to. And that's a good reason to think about it, a good reason to hold on to it. There's another one, though. Another reason to think about this song, which is this, that you need a better foundation for Thanksgiving than personal blessing. I've said it already this evening. I've encouraged you to think about the ways God has blessed you personally. So absolutely, there's nothing wrong with reflecting on personal blessing. What I'm saying, though, is you need more than that in order to feel the kind of gratitude that these elders are singing about. Because personal blessings wax and wane. Because sometimes things are going well for you and sometimes you're being tried. You're struggling. Because sometimes even when things go really well for you, even on like the best day of your life, trust me, there will be moments during that day where you have a lot of doubt and uncertainty. And you'll need someone to remind you of the reason that you have to be thankful. Personal blessing is like that. It's subjective. right? It's subject to our limitations. But we have much more to celebrate than the personal. There's something bigger going on in this song, in the presence of God celebrating this. These elders, as they give voice to these words, they're not singing just for themselves. They're not singing just because they're happy this has happened. They're singing because of a cosmic blessing, not just a personal one, because they are in the presence of something so much larger than themselves that it gives meaning to their existence. And we need more of that. We need more sense of that cosmic reason to be thankful, that cosmic reason to find meaning, regardless of our prosperity or our pandemics. When you reflect on the song, there are a couple of things to kind of chew on, to think about. If you look at the text, these three things should jump out at you. If you are are reading kind of just the, the song portion, We're really talking about verse 17 and verse 18. And there's three things that should jump out at you. First of all, from verse 17, the fact that God is eternal, who is and who was. God stands outside of time. Our temporal blessings, our our personal blessings are so bounded within time, within the constraints of time and seasons. Yet the God who we thank 
and praise is outside of it all. And yet also within it, in the midst of it, with us. And that's reason to be in awe. The fact that God is eternal. The fact that that the great power that he possesses is limitless. Is reason for gratitude. The second thing is this, that God rules and reigns supreme. The elders declare, you have taken your great power and begun to reign. I mean, imagine the significance of those words. For witnesses to all of human history, which has been, for the most part, a history of misrule, of division and disorder and destruction. And now, at last, the long-promised king has come and has fully taken control. He has taken the reins. He has taken his great power and now reigns. Reflect on that. And you'll find a foundation for gratitude. And finally, this in verse 18, God, when he reigns, establishes justice. When it's difficult to be grateful or thankful, oftentimes the reason is because we see so much around us that's that's wrong, that's not right. Why would we feel gratitude? Why would we express thankfulness when we're surrounded by suffering, when we're surrounded by injustice, and so many examples of things to be angry about, it feels inappropriate. It feels wrong to be thankful, to show gratitude. But when the great God of eternity, the God of all creation, rules and reigns with his great power, the thing that he does is he establishes justice. As the elders sing, the nations rage, but your wrath came, your just wrath against sin. The time for the dead to be judged. Judgment is justice. For rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And then, in a fantastic turn of phrase, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. When God establishes justice, The ones who have to watch out are the destroyers. The ones who have to watch out are those who have raged against him. Because he will do justice. So this Thanksgiving, take some time and reflect on the best Thanksgiving. The last Thanksgiving, which is still to come. Join the elders at the throne and reflecting on these words and singing this song and acting as if the not yet for a moment is already and imagining what that will be like. Take some time to thank the Lord for restoring order and rightness, for using his power to make the world right. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.